Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. And with me today to talk about LGBTQI Plus History Month is the wonderful Michelle Codrington Rogers. Michelle Hi. is a teacher of citizen. Hi, Michelle. <laughs> Michelle is a teacher of citizenship at a large school in Oxford. As a first-generation UK-born Vincentian bred, she's proud of her family and cultural heritage. Michelle is an active trade unionist and was the first full-time black students officer for the US. And that's how I know Michelle. I met her and it was a brilliant and inspiring experience and I'm so pleased that we've managed to keep in touch. Currently, Michelle is representing 3,000 plus teachers across Oxfordshire for NASWIT, the Teachers' Union. Michelle was elected as a national officer of NASWIT, the Teachers' Union, in 2017 and will become the first known black president in April 2020. Huge congratulations. Thank you. Published in Rose Must Fall, The Struggle to Decolonize in the, the Racist Heart of Empire. And I'm pleased to say that I know a lot about the decolonization uh, Roads Must Fall campaign, and it's very, very valuable. But hopefully we can pick up about that in our conversations. So a huge welcome, Michelle. Hello, and thank you for having me. You made me sound really good there, so no, thank you. <laughs> you are really good. <laughs> so... Is there anything else you'd like to to tell the listeners about what you do? So in particular about your teaching journey, your career leadership journey in teaching and your work in the liberation movements? Well, I I, I guess it's just that I've kind of fallen into this this, um, activism. Um, I think my family's got a history of activism from the island um, and it's always been instilled in us that if you see something unjust or unfair, then you speak up for it. And I mean, that kind of got me into trouble a lot at school. So it's really quite hilarious that I'm now a teacher um, because the amount of trouble I used to start at school um, was generally me trying to call stuff out. And so I think I've ended up in education mainly because I believe that that's the best space to give young people the um, understanding that their voices are powerful. And I learned that, I guess, at my time at NUS and seeing student activism and seeing that there is opportunities for people to develop that voice. So I think for me, I've kind of fallen into activism, but the most important thing is about making sure that people have got a voice and they find their voice. And I was really fortunate um, to have the opportunity to go to university as one of the first first generation of my family to go to university. Um, and have that space to develop that voice and a lot of our young people from our communities don't have that chance to so I think yeah I think that's pretty much me really yeah it's it's interesting that you say you sort of fell into it because I remember when I met you at NUS it 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 seemed to come very naturally to you and it seemed like that was definitely the direction you wanted to go in and you were so passionate and informed um, and patient as well with people who didn't really understand the agenda because I remember one of the first workshops we were talking about black with a capital B and actually you in NUS could be part of that campaign and the kind of I'll, I'll never forget the patience and resilience you showed with people who were I don't know who just I, I don't think they challenged appropriately I'll say um so I'm <laughs> that you say you fell into it accidentally because to me as an outsider it seems very intentional and purposeful well for me it's always about people and I think that's 
you know, that's where I I think it's so important as human beings to connect with each other and try to understand the different journeys and experiences that we each have. It's interesting you said that about Black with the capital B, because I can't believe I'm still having that debate and still having that discussion. You know, I'm not going to say how old I am, but, you know, X amount years later. And we're still having this struggle to have the permission to self-define and to self-organize and to self and not even not even to self but to be able to speak on our own behalf and NUS was a very good training ground um but it's just interesting that we're still having these same debates kind of and I use inverted commas um in grown-up politics as well and I think my voice hopefully has got stronger but it's so crucial that we are speaking together to show that there is diversity within our communities and making sure that we recognize that and thank you for for saying how patient patient I was I don't think I was I think I was quite um um with the youthfulness of wanting change and wanting change right now um I think it was just important for me that we were able to connect on that level and it's amazing that we're still connected uh, again I'll say x amount years later um, where we're still involved in different activism, you know, opportunities and paths keep crossing. And it shows that when you do find the time and space to empower people, you know, it's that's something that's absolutely invaluable. Yeah, no, completely. And, you know, you, you put in your bio about being Vincentian born, uh, UK Vincentian bred. Um, what, what could you just give us a little flavour of how you define Vincentian culture? Well, I think my mum was first generation. And so when she arrived in, in England, it was a huge shock to the system for her, quite literally. Um, she ended up going back to school. So even though she'd finished school in St. Vincent, um, she ended up having to redo her last year. And I think that was a huge culture shock for her. Um, you know, you go from a country where people look like you and think like you and um you know you're a majority to suddenly coming into an environment where it was almost acceptable to be bullied and picked on because of the color of your skin and I think my mum developed a level of resilience that um that she's definitely passed down to me and my sisters um which in turn has passed down to our you know to our our children and nieces and nephews it's this idea that um don't be afraid to speak up for yourself and you know I'm really proud of the fact that some some of the words that I might use growing up which I'm like for me are very quintessentially Vincentian that when I go back to St Vincent they laugh at me because it's like why are you using these old-fashioned words from the 1970s 80s um, and I'm like, well for me that's a really important word um, but it's that idea of knowledge of this connection to land, um, you know, my my family are very proud of intentions um, and we can walk the path of our ancestors and who lived where and who went to school here and who had a shop here and who worked the land here. And my mum was always instilled that in us, this connection to land. Um, so even but even though born in Britain and very, you know, I am proud to be British. I, you know, I'm proud to be a part of a, a multicultural multi-ethnic diverse society um, but I'm still very much connected to the land in St Vincent and as soon as I land and step off the plane I feel home it could be the fact that you know suddenly I'm part of a majority again um, or it could be the fact that I get to smell the bread um, that's being baked as I get off of the off the plane but there is very much this this 
identity, which it almost feels dual heritage. And I think that's the best way to describe it. Mm. Yeah, and so many of us feel dual heritage, but it's mm. often be difficult to describe to people who maybe don't have the cultural influences that we do. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you for that because I found it really interesting. So, so thank you for sharing that. Um, so on to LGBTQIA plus history. Mm. We had a discussion and I'm using this term to make as many people feel included as possible. I know often it will be referred to as LGBT or LGBTI plus history month, but this is the term we're using for this episode. So Michelle, what does this month mean to you? Well, I mean, for me, it's about recognising and giving that space to actually talk about some of those stories and those history and those histories and her stories that don't get told. Um, just it's kind of like, just like Black History Month. I feel it shouldn't be resigned to a month. This is too much. Um, there's too much culture and heritage um, and history and history to, to be shared. But it gives us an opportunity to focus our attention. It's an opportunity to celebrate what as a community the lgbti plus q community has brought has achieved to this point but also to recognize the struggles of those who have gone before um it's also quite interesting for me being a woman of color or i hate that term i'm not going to use it again but being a black woman um within the lgbtq plus community where often I, some, I'll be honest, often there are times I don't feel comfortable. Um, but there are other times where, you know, it's, it's a place where I absolutely belong. And for me, that's what this month is about. It's about looking within ourselves and thinking about who we are, but also thinking about how our community has got to be and where it is. Yeah, so yeah, very much around the parallels. And when I've talked to guests about Black History Month, you know, there's a mix of opinion around why is it just confined to a month hyper visibility mm -hmm. it needs to be you know this all needs to be 365 it should be quote unquote again you're not going to like this term but people <laughs> this is usual aka understanding as always yeah. um, so are there any so as part of naswat and the other unions that you might work with um what what are some of the events going on how are you going to be celebrating um lgbtqia pluses so NASUWT, um, what we do is we have our LGBTI plus, um, that's the term that we've adopted, um, conference where we have a weekend in Birmingham with our members, um, some of whom are out, some of whom aren't, um, and, but it's a safe space where our members are able to come and we will talk about issues impacting on us as members, not just me members of the LGBT community, but us as educators. Um, and it's um, an opportunity, I guess, again, for us to be reflective and to think what influence we can have as educators in schools, primary, right up to you know, tertiary, to FE, what influence we can have, not just on the curriculum, which is a huge important, hugely important part, but also what influence we can have on the children and young people who are sitting in front of us, whether that is to give um, a sense of empowerment to the children who are identifying um, with the community, whether it's trying to identify who they are, where they fit within it, or whether it's children who have no contact and no understanding. So it's very multifaceted. So our conference is one that is also about us having that time to be reflective and and 
get support to know that we're not alone. Um, but our, our, our union also um, has a LGBTI plus COVID, that's the term we use, um, advisory committee as well. Um, and we are active on the TUC LGBT, I think it's LGBTI plus oh, LGBTQ um, committee as well. So it's about making sure that teachers, the voices of teachers are heard. Um, I'm going to keep tripping over the letters and I'm not going to lie. It's because in the political sphere, we use so many different combinations. Um, And so it's important to be inclusive, but recognise that it is an attempt to be inclusive. (laughs) No, thank you. Which is why we're, you know, using the plus so that everyone is included, but we might trip over our letters and that's not intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And clearly, you know, this year has been very... (laughs) Do I want to use the word interesting? I think difficult in some ways around the misunderstanding, I would say, around the RSC campaigns and the protests yes. seen in certain schools. So yeah. again, I don't know whether you uh, want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the kind of union approach to this or what the next phase is, because there have been a hundred and something schools that are early adopters. Um, yeah. that have been rolled out. And there's been a lot, I think, a misunderstanding around what the RSC uh, agenda or proposals are. Absolutely. I think the most important thing to recognise is that it was through the work of the unions and educators where we got that important measure introduced to the RSE, which is about parents not being able to withdraw their children. Because the RSE curriculum is one where children have to be able to understand how we interact with each other as human beings. Um, And the RSE program and the curriculum that's coming in is one that kind of like everyone's focusing on the sex and the relationships and that's actually that is that is the part that gets really easily um misunderstood because they think it's just about the sex and actually it's about the relationships and interactions with each other and as you said it's interesting times we live in it we live in at the moment and a lot of that is down to people not interacting with each other anymore you know that whole idea of we have social media but we don't know how to be social and if we're not teaching our children that in a safe space about the different types of relationships that we can have then we're going to lose that opportunity we're going to lose yet another generation so the RSE um, curriculum has given a really good opportunity and I use the word opportunity a lot um, for schools to be able to be reflective because our schools are not getting it right whether it's primary or secondary our schools are not getting it right when it comes to preparing children and young people for how to be social whether that is developing romantic relationships or friendships or relationship family relationships we are not getting it right it is so hit miss and I've been really fortunate last year I got to go to the United Nations um, Commission on the Status of Women and listening to young people from across the world begging for the adults to make sure that they are prepared for being adults, to make sure that they have that opportunity to talk about their bodies and their feelings and emotions and the science, but the sociology behind it as well. We have got children from across the world and I was sat there listening to young people from Britain asking for the same thing as children from Zimbabwe and I just thought how could we have got this so wrong you know and when we have 
protests and campaigns happening against schools who were just talking about relationships, that's when we know that we've got it wrong. Because it's about parents understanding that we are trying to enhance what they're trying to teach their children, hopefully what they're trying to teach their children at home. And our members as teachers have been caught in the firing line of, of especially the protests in Birmingham. And I know that our activists in Birmingham have worked really hard to support our members who were bullied for yeah. being a part of this and were made to feel unsafe. And the children were made to feel unsafe just because they were trying to talk about what it means to be social. And that's the other thing, you know, and I, I'm a school governor and I think what I find frustrating is that the biological elements of, of sex, the, the, you know, the really biological elements of it are taught in the science curriculum. So as you say, this is about understanding relationships. And also, if we don't create a safe space, we as in society, then people are just going to look on their phones at the various websites that are miseducated. And so, I, yeah, I find it, I've just, yeah, I just wanted to pick up on that because for me, it's been eye-opening and also quite scary. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not a parent and yet I'm really worried, you know, I'm child free by choice and but that it's not about whether you've got children or not it's about like you said society and if people are calling out for it we need to respond to that absolutely and you know what even even you're you're saying that about being child free you know that's something that our society is changing our relationships with each other are changing and we need to acknowledge that you know that that attitude and that understanding that the world was in the 1950s with mum dad two kids a dog picket fence you know that world does exist for some people but for a lot of our our community the people we come into um, contact with that's not their reality and now we're talking about it now we're giving that space to to understand and to interact with the society we're in today rather than this dream world that existed in the you know in the past actually we have to understand that and the worrying thing that I found and you say about the science curriculum there's been so much curriculum change over the last few years thanks to interference by government that actually schools are stripping out certain parts of the curriculum and presuming that other subjects are teaching it and there's a there's a realization to come that actually everyone's presumed that other subjects have been teaching it and they're going to realize that nobody's been teaching it and this is how we've got into this problem because we've had a lot of over interference in what we should be teaching to young people yeah yes so yeah, <laughs> the holistic picture and, and i think the point here really is for parents to ask questions you know professionally appropriately but you have a you need you know people need to know and to ask your school what they're doing and to find out what the plans are you don't have to sit back you can be uh, you, you know you can shape it in a way by being a parent you're a stakeholder in schools so mm -hmm. yeah i thought that was an important point to make um so moving on to workplaces then, and we've seen, I think year on year it grows, Barclays has sponsored um, London Pride, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we see cash points going rainbow coloured, it's, it's, yes. really, it's brilliant to, to raise awareness, but my question to you is what could workplaces do, and I'm thinking workplaces across the spectrum, every sector, to celebrate LGBTQIA plus History Month impactfully in your, in your you know, according to you? But I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert, <laughs> um, but this is this is definitely conversations that I've been having with a number of different quarters, which is that idea of when when is a company trying to 
basically get some of that pink shade um, and trying to use it to tick the box for corporate response, social responsibility and what are they actually doing? Um, and it has to come down to the policies. It has to come down to the policies and how they're applied. It's not about having a rainbow um, for a month and having rainbow cups or, uh, you know, having the, the rainbow flag flying outside of your building. It's about what actual policies do you have? How is that reflected in your family friendly policies? You know, how are you giving um, people time to, I guess, just kind of to be treated equally? I think that's what it absolutely comes down to. And I think that's where companies need to be essentially stepping up. They need to re- they need to be reflecting, not just throwing money and saying, right, we're going to sponsor pride, but actually thinking, what are we learning? What's the message that we're learning for? What, you know, what is the equality that this community is asking for? What is the um, visibility that this community are looking for? And they also have to, I've used the word resilience already, um, but they also have to be resilient and understand that there will be people within the community who will treat them with suspicion and will treat them with kind of hesitancy going, oh, look, they're back jumping on a bandwagon and they have to show a commitment. I think that's, uh, for me, that's what I would expect workplaces to do is to review their policies, make sure that they are about treating people equally. Um, but it's also about making sure those policies are put into place as well. I mean, that's a typical trade unionist answer, I think. But it is very much that, you know, you have to have the paperwork and you have to make sure everyone's trained to understand it and to make sure it's put into place. Um, and also in reviewing those policies, would you say working with your trade union reps, if you've got them in your organisation, but also working with your employee resource groups or staff networks? Absolutely. And it's about making sure that you have that um, that two way channel with your employees and with your with the people who are who are doing the work on the ground. Make sure that they've got a voice so that they're able to feed in trade unions. Absolutely. Because we have we provide the opportunity to make sure people are trained and people are given an, an access to networks that they have outside of your workplace where they're able to bring back examples of good practice and opportunities to work together. But also it is about having those networks of your employees so that you can stay focused on what it is that your your business or company or organisation is trying to provide. But it is definitely about listening to what your employees want and need and not being afraid as well to work with others. So working outside of your industry, working outside of your specialism, you know, kind of be a leader in working with others. Yeah, which sometimes I think people do find a real struggle and challenge, don't they? So, Absolutely. Yeah, so maybe think about what ways partnership would be beneficial and not a threat to your business or your ideas, even though I don't, you know, I don't think like that, but a lot of people feel quite territorial. Yeah, I mean, and one of the things, that I'm going to big up my cousin here, because my cousin in Canada, um, one of the things he did was he pulled together this um, conference to focus on LGBT equality in the workplace and brought people from different sectors and different industries together as an opportunity. They weren't all, they weren't all LGBT members of the community. They were people who wanted, or companies that wanted to see how can we be reflective. And it was a huge success. It's that opportunity to come together and share ideas. And we, we're losing that um, as we get more 
I guess I hate to say it, more corporate and protectionist in our businesses. But actually, this is the opportunity for companies and businesses and organisations to work together. Yeah, absolutely. And what about um, any sort of fun events? So are there any events that you're looking forward to going to? Uh, <laughs> celebratory events that you think, yeah, this really, this really works. <laughs> Things you've been to that really work. I'm publicly apologising to my family who for the last three or four years have basically when Pride season starts, we are spending almost every other weekend at Prides across the, across the southeast um, because we were really proud of NASUWT. Um, we reinvigorated our, our Pride um, committee and myself and one and my colleague um, Gary, um, we ended up basically going to pretty much every Pride in the southeast region. Um, we got experts at, at carrying boxes across muddy fields um, and actually it was a, a really good chance for not just us to showcase what it is NASUWT does to support um, teachers but also an opportunity to talk to young people um, and kind of say to them yeah you do realize you've got you've got LGBTI teachers in your school and the kids will always go oh yeah such and such and such and such or they'll talk about some of the issues they're having at school and it was really good a really good chance so yeah we used we used to this year my because my role has changed slightly um, therefore i've been i've been kind of i've had to manage my time a bit more but the pride events across the southeast definitely up there nhwt used to be a sponsor for um london pride and now we're a sponsor for black pride um we sponsor an active at manchester pride birmingham pride um yeah i one of the good things is that we get an opportunity to kind of tour the country and 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 go to the pride events and have you know have that that space to connect with our members so yes i look forward to pride season fab fab so get involved in pride and think about sponsor workplaces think about sponsoring pride or sending your staff network if people want to get involved with the local pride planning you could give them some time off to be part of those committees if that's what's required absolutely and and that is quite a meaningful thing to do and your point about black pride that brings me on to my next question which is um you know how could lgbtqia plus history month be made more inclusive and open to all communities and often people have said you know why is there a black pride because in some circumstances or contexts particularly i know in workplace events um sometimes it can have a very monocultural feel and and and, um stonewall have talked about this how it's lgbt but there's a capital g and all the other letters are in lowercase so again i just wanted your take and thoughts on that about how we can think about the intersectionality and that again comes back to visibility and voices um pride i mean a number of the the pride committees it's talking about whether or not they are um reflecting the community as well um there's this there's this stereotype and this i'm I'm gonna have to address it here because there's this stereotype that um black and i'm going to use black and minority ethnic um as much as i have difficulty with that term um black and minority ethnic lgbti um plus um people we've got our own struggles you know it's like this hierarchy of identities and because we there's this presumption that we're constantly either hiding 
our identity from our families and our communities or we're battling with our communities and our families we're dealing with our ethnicity and our our cultural background first and therefore there's no energy for us to be a part of the lgbti plus community which is an absolute fallacy absolute fallacy it is i think it's what has led to almost a parallel um lgbti plus space for black and minority ethnic um you know peoples and as long as there's this kind of either or it means that there's going to be division within but in within the communities i'm not saying that the issues are exactly the same but you know what as as a black woman who has a hidden disability who's also um lgbti plus you know i don't pick, get to pick and choose my identities um and so therefore there are spaces where i go to for invigoration and there are spaces that i go to for um support and empathy and there are spaces that i go to because it's about that that kind of energy and activism and that fight um and the frustration i've had is that it sometimes feel like certain spaces are closed off to me because of presumptions about who I am or what cultural background I have. And so I think that that's at the crux of it. We need to get over this whole, well, in, you know, where your family are from, they're so homophobic. There's reasons and historical reasons why. Um, and let's be honest, a number of people in the in the kind of LGBTI activist community don't understand the impact of colonialism and empire um, on our cultural identities and the and the islands and countries that we are from. But actually, don't dismiss it. Try and understand it, and then don't shut us out of the space. And so, sorry, I did have to kind of just get that out there because it's one of the. It's one of the key issues that I find really frustrating, um, in addition to the presumption of what uh, a gay woman or gay black woman looks like. You know, <laughs> I don't fit a stereotype. Um, <laughs> and lots of people, you know, I find the kind of the shock on their faces when, you know, that whole I have, I have to or I choose to or I come out to them and they're like, oh, okay um you know I'm like well it's just who I am that's all it is at the end of the day if I'm in that space it's because I choose to be in that space because I belong in that space yeah and so again it's it, it, we talked about and then we talked about this Sarah Daisy actually in in terms of body image and what people expect and what's put on people um and again the assumptions that people make about certain communities and who belongs and who doesn't belong and it's fascinating in the Asian space as well obviously and Asian is a huge term so lots of communities and then you've got colonialism as well and um yeah and and again I really value organizations like Hidia um and Muslim LGBTQI yes. organizations yeah do some really interesting work um and yet they're all sort of brushed with the same brush around well poor you you've got to do yes because, yeah so that the yeah. model is not helpful and you mentioned hidden disability as well and thinking about with, when I talked with Kate Nash um, around you know pitying and assuming and it's not about that it's just saying all right cool what do you need what do you need what policy change do you need what practical change do you need let's do it I don't need to know the ins and outs of your sexual life how you came out yes <laughs> that's fine but um, <laughs> I don't really know do I <laughs> no and and but this is where 
you have to trust the people whose voice it is. You know, it's that case of I'm listening. I'm not needing you to necessarily empathize, if that makes sense. Um, it's not that, um, oh, me too, that similar thing happened to me at, sometimes it's a case of I'm just using that example so that you understand where I'm coming from. It doesn't need commentary. I'm telling you and explaining it from my perspective. Um, and it's about that, you know, I don't need, I don't need to pe- for people to take away my voice because they feel they can use it better. And I think that's for me has essentially been the message of my whole I guess my whole activism life has been, I can speak for myself. All I need you to do is to listen and let's come up with a way forward together. Yeah, thank you. So I think when we're thinking about the workplace and inclusivity is making sure you've got representation, um, working with other groups. So maybe people don't identify as LGBTQIA+, but they want to contribute. They want to be an ally. They also want to expand the knowledge um, and the voice and potentially bring uh, another aspect of the campaign or to review a policy that makes the workplace more inclusive and more accessible for everyone. Absolutely. You said it much better than I did. <laughs> I really value your time because I know how incredibly busy you are. Thank you for talking about, you know, your personal experience and your culture and how that's grounded your activism, the work that you do in trade unions, what workplaces can do and how we all need to, whether we have children or not, shape society so that we're in a space where we can relate and understand each other. So, Michelle, some real, real gems there as always. No, thank you. And if people want to know more about your work or they thought, oh, I'd like to, I'm a teacher and I'm not actually unionised, which hopefully is rare. (laughs) I hope so too. (laughs) And they want to contact you, um, and I'll include the links in the show notes, but how would you like people to get in touch with you or the union? Well, um, the union has got its webpage, which is www.nasuwt.org.uk. So please do check out our page. And there are specific areas on the website which are for um, what we call underrepresented groups. So please do visit those areas um, we've done a lot of research as a union and um, to support our campaigns so if you are um, looking for more information about education um, then please do check out our website um, if you want to contact me at the moment I tweet as at Ox City um, NSUWT so that's our kind of our local Twitter account um, apart from that you can find me on Facebook um, or uh, you, so you can contact me via Facebook or you can contact me I think I'm on Instagram as well so I'm getting there <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're doing better than me I can't I can't post another platform I'm not on Instagram but um, oh, well. <laughs> but I'll include those show notes because I know a lot of Absolutely. our listeners yeah, are on Instagram so Michelle thank you so much and I wish no, you thank you for having me happy LGBTQIA plus history month and I hopefully catch up with you at Pride very soon Absolutely, and a happy History Month to all of you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Michelle. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.